You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to episode 107 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. On this episode, we're sitting down with Nick Bayer, founder and CEO of Saxby's Coffee. Nick has always been in the business of bringing people together, whether it's as one of Philadelphia Business Journal's most admired CEOs or as a consummate team captain since Little League. So when he created Saxby's in 2005, Nick never really considered it a coffee company. Instead, it's a social impact company fueled by amazing food, beverage, and hospitality. Philadelphia-based Saxby's has since grown from one corner cafe to nearly 30 units with a singular mission. Make life better. Saxby's is a hospitality business fueled by great coffee. They pair the local, friendly atmosphere of a neighborhood coffee shop with consistently delicious products that you'd find at a big-name coffee place. Today, the team at Saxby spans over 700 members across the Northeast that represent the changemakers of tomorrow. In 2015, Nick introduced Saxby's pioneering experiential learning platform, or ELP, in partnership with Drexel University, the nation's first entirely student-run cafe where students earn full academic credit and wages through a university cooperative education platform. Nick's vision for the platform is to embolden the next generation of entrepreneurs, providing undergrad students with tangible experience as a supplement to traditional classroom learning. Since 2015, one ELP cafe has blossomed into 12. You'll hear Nick and I discuss the ELP program and what student CEOs can learn and experience from running a million-dollar business on their own. Nick is joining us today to discuss how he developed the concept for Saxby's and a system that's repeatable and scalable by college students. Here are the self-made strategies of Nick Bayer. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. I know you're super busy, especially dealing with the pandemic still. We're recording this right at the beginning of 2021, and this episode will air about a week after we record it. So um, I know you're super busy and you need to get back to what you're doing to keep Saxby's afloat through all of this. But I'm really curious about how this all came about. So you graduate from Cornell University in 2000. Obviously, you're inter- interested in entrepreneurship. Did you have the idea for Saxby's right away? Or, or how did that ideation process go f- for developing the idea for Saxby's and then executing on it and launching it? Right. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, Tony, thanks so much for having me. Um, I, I always love the opportunity to be able to to talk about tax beads. I think I think one of the best ways for me to be able to learn oftentimes is to talk about things and then think about what I've talked about and see how people react to things. So I, I always love the opportunity to talk about um, the trials and tribulations of, of building tax beads, especially with really uh, interesting and smart people like yourself. I mean, your story and your path to where you are today is uh, is really inspiring. So, um, so I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you. Um, you know, I guess the specific question of like, did the idea for Saxby's come to me when I was you know, in school? No, it definitely did not. Um, in many ways, I don't even mean this to sound like funny, but I think the idea for Saxby's is still coming together. You know, it's um, the the idea of me creating a mission driven, um, I guess, entrepreneurial, but really, you know, it was not entrepreneurial at the time, but really like this, this idea of doing something mission driven with my professional career 
is something that was probably 18 years in the making by the time I had gotten to Cornell, but I certainly wow. did not, did not realize it. You know, I did not realize it. I don't, if I uttered the word entrepreneur a single time when I was at Cornell, I'd be shocked. Like, yeah, I can't go back in time and figure that out. But I, I don't believe that I was like running around telling people like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to start a business. I certainly wasn't saying I'm going to start a business sort of in the hospitality or coffee space, but you know, I, I have always been pretty focused on like, what am I going to do for a living? You know, like what, what is my calling going to be? And, you know, like, like your set, set situation, my situation, anybody who's listening to this situation, like our upbringing in those formative formula of years of like elementary, middle high school, if we get a ch- chance to go to college, like, those are really, really important. And, and I always tell the young people in Saxby's, I'm like, for a long time, I thought of all of those years for me where like you, I wasn't raised with a silver spoon. I wasn't raised right. with money. I wasn't raised with a, a ton of, a ton of opportunity. And I, for a long time out of immaturity thought and, and, and drag those things along a little bit as baggage. And now I encourage people to realize that all those things, like whether you had it, how you had it, how I had it better, worse, whatever it happens to be, everybody has issues with their childhood and their upbringing. And many times we all make it out to be worse than it actually was. Um, but I think many ways we bring that around as baggage. And I think that once we start to realize that those challenges and overcoming those challenges and the resilience and, and um, muscle memory and positivity that comes from those things, when we start to realize that that's actually our superpower and not our baggage, when it goes from being behind us to being in front of us, is where we do our best work. And so by the time I got, got into Cornell, I started to realize those things. You know, my parents didn't have an education they took pretty much whatever jobs they could get once they were teenagers getting ready to have a kid and said, you know what? My dad begged his way on to the third shift working in a warehouse wow. on the West side of Chicago. And my mom started as a, as a receptionist, you know, and they, um, they hustled. And I remember for 18 years growing up in their house, there were not a lot of days where they loved work. You know, they did, they weren't doing things that they were passionate about. My parents are really smart. Um, but life has a funny way of being thrown at you or sometimes starting your life a little too early as they did in starting a family. And so I just remember a lot of negativity around work with them. And by the time I had gotten to be a high schooler, and certainly by the time I got to, to, to college in a place like Cornell, I started to realize, I'm like, if I'm going to be like everybody else, we're going to spend more time in this country, we spend more time working than anything else. I don't know what what it is that I'm going to do looks like, but I know it's not going to be like what my parents did. And, and I don't mean the work. You know, because there might be some people who love working in a warehouse or love being a receptionist. They can talk to people. They can, every day is a little bit different, but my parents didn't like to what wasn't what they were passionate about. I wanted to do something that was going to make my heart race. I wanted to do something where I never felt like I was actually working. So by the time I was 22, freaking about, freaking out about what I was going to do. I think one day I wanted to be James Bond. The next day I wanted to be a lawyer. The next day I wanted to be a professional baseball player, you know, and I was like, what am I going to do with, you know, with, with my life? I had a couple of coaches and teachers who were just lifelong mentors of mine who, when I wanted to go the wrong way, they made me go the right way. And I remember calling them and being like, I'm freaking out, freaking out about what I'm doing. And I remember them calmly and confidently and with great pride and passion telling me how proud they were of me. And I felt like I had no, I hadn't accomplished anything at that, that stage of my life. And I remember hanging up being like, I want, they were later in their careers. I want that feeling professionally throughout and certainly when my career was over, meaning I know that I made a real impact in people's lives. People's lives were better because I existed and whatever I was going to do professionally um, had, had a huge hand in that. But 
I had gotten a crash course in business going to Cornell. I had some awesome internships. I was around a lot of people who, um, whose families had great businesses and yada, yada, yada. And I loved business. As an athlete and as a competitor, I feel like the best is brought out of me when I have to bring my A game every single day. When I'm on my toes and my and competition is all around, the best comes out of me. But I'm like, is there a way for me to put those two things together? I, I'm happiest when I'm doing things for other people. I'm at my best when I have to be competitive and innovative and challenged. And look, today, Tony, like it's 2021. I can't believe I'm saying that. I'm still writing 2020, which is, you know, yeah, probably <laughs> Freudian. Um, but um, you know, the, I think the, the reality of the situation is, is that today we call that being a social entrepreneur. My, my seven-year-old son, in case we're doing video, <laughs> is dancing in the background. I'm, I'm also a full-time first grade teacher right now. Um, yeah, yeah but, you can uh, watch... Uh, let me just jump in. You can watch Luke uh, bombing our session here in the background. So uh, yeah. check this out on YouTube if you're listening to this. Go ahead. And, yeah, as if there's not enough entertainment uh, <laughs> in the world these days. But um, so... You know, it was today we, we talk about being social entrepreneurs because it's a relatively normal thing. I'd never heard the term social entrepreneur. I'm not even sure I uttered the word, as I mentioned before, entrepreneur when I was in college. But this is exactly what I wanted to do. I just didn't know it had to come through the form of a business. I didn't realize it had to come in the form of a quintessential people business, that it would come through the form of experiential learning. But like, that's what life and that's what careers and that's especially what entrepreneurial careers are is their journeys, you know, and you oftentimes learn more about your failures. Than your successes. So I'll sort of stop there because I'm sure we'll go into some, some more of the stuff. But I did not have the idea for Saxon. My story is, you know, like no business plan, no capital raise initially, like every mistake you could possibly made. It almost seems like I was looking to make mistakes. I made so many of them. First of all, I empathize with you, right? Because similarly, only recently, I'm 37 now, and only recently have I started to kind of put the pieces together and to tell a little yep. bit about my backstory, you know, from the email, but I was an yep. auto mechanic before going to college, decided that that wasn't the right thing for me about two, two and a half years in. I had a little bit of success there, but decided, all right, I need to go and get my undergrad degree, go back to undergrad, start as an engineering major, end up in business school, kind of trying to figure out and find my path, as you, as you were saying, very similarly to yours. And I'm nowhere near where you are, but, uh, but I, I empathize with that story. And I hope that anyone who's listening to this, if they're not where they think they need to be, know that you are on the path to something. And as you said, it's a journey, right, that isn't fully written yet. If it is, that, that's not a great thing. You want it to be a path of growth and of, of, you know, sort of this origin story of the superhero that you're going to be. And I love that you point out that sometimes a lot of what you think are weaknesses end up being your superpowers that you can then transform into, if you combine them in the right way, transform them into something magical. Now, just quick question about that from a practical standpoint, because where I am now, I've been very fortunate like you that I've had some great mentors and that I've, I mean, each and every one, this is episode 107 of this podcast, each and every one of these episodes, I realized at about 90-ish that they were micro mentoring sessions. I was getting to sit down and just super fortunate to sit down with entrepreneurs like yourself and just pick their brain and get to, you know, soak up that information. But from a practical perspective, how do you go from... I have these weaknesses, whatever they are. How do I put them together to turn them into a superpower? And then, yes, it's important to follow your passion for sure, because that pumps you up, like you said, to bring your A-game day to day. 
But how do you turn that into a solid business plan, right? How do you practically say, I'm really passionate about this, whatever it is, filmmaking, baking, whatever it is, coffee in your, in your case, right? But, but people really, because it's not really, it's more of a people business than it is a coffee business. So how do you, in your, in your own words, turn that into a practical application into a business? So I think I, I one, one thing I think I'll take exception with on that question, Tony, is sure. I think that as it relates to starting a business, I don't I don't know that you necessarily take your mistakes and turn that into starting a business unless you've already been an entrepreneur, you had a business that failed or a couple of businesses have failed, which which is a fascinating story. The guys who who started Five Below, which is a phenomenal business, a thousand stores, they're just crushing it and will continue to crush it for a long time. You know, it's an ingenious model, but they speak very openly. Like I know the two guys very well, and they speak very openly how they created a business called Zany Brainy way back in the day, like the 90s, I think, that was an amazing business, but they made such critical mistakes that they destroyed the business. Right. Two or three years off, and then they started five below based on all those failures. But I think if you're a first-time entrepreneur, I think I think it has to be sort of like the opposite. I think that you have to start a business that the existence of this business just makes your heart race. Like you can't sleep without the existence of this business and without the idea of the work that you're going to put in and the impact that this is going to make in your life, your family's life, and other people's lives as well. So I think you have to start from a position of like strength. Yeah, what are you good at? Like what really motivates you? Like I always say, I'm sitting in my office in, in Center City, Philadelphia. Saxby's, we have our mission core values on the wall. This is a very Saxby's experience here. And like normally the, play, the music is loud. People are bustling around. Like everyone loved coming to my office pre-pandemic. because so it was just like a cool, positive, happy vibe of people. That's what our business is. This is what I'm good at. This is what motivates me. This is what makes me excited and happy. Go one floor above. And there's a great technology company. And that, that's most of their computer scientists and their engineers are up there. And they do a lot of their programming. Move me, the exact same person who's pretty good down on the third floor, move me up to the fourth floor, I'd be the worst ever. I'm just not that interested in technology mm -hmm. or engineering. It's just not my thing. So I think you have to start a business from a position of strength. The things that naturally make you happy. Not the things that make your mom or dad happy or next door neighbor. Oh, wow, this will sound amazing at a cocktail party that I did this or that. If you're not actually interested in it, don't do it. If you're not willing to run through a brick wall and have sleepless nights, don't do it because you're going to have those things. I've never heard an entrepreneurial story ever. Like, think about Mark Zuckerberg. We've all seen the social network. Like, wow, what an amazing thing. Think about the trials and tribulations he went through. He lost yeah. friends, family yeah. members. To this day, is testifying in front of Congress. Like, business is hard. Entrepreneurship is the hardest form of business. And so I think you have to start from a position of strength and passion. Then, once you start, then it's about mistake making and it's about pivoting off of those mistakes. And so like, I, I would say I've made so many mistakes. It's actually, but I, I would say one of the things I point to most often because it's most relevant to what we're doing now is that because I knew nothing about anything, I originally started to franchise Saxby's out of the, out of the gates. So many of our, like more than half of our existence, Saxby's was a franchise company, which is funny because people who know Saxby's today never associate franchising with us whatsoever. And so, yeah, but the idea of franchising is essentially that you as, as a, as a, you know, the founder of this business, Saxby's, I've created a mission, core values, operating standards, a vendor network, mm -hmm. a brand, essentially a model of success that you then license to other entrepreneurial people who don't want to have to recreate the wheel. 
know, they want to be entrepreneurial and run an actual business, but they don't want to have to go through all the trials and tribulations of figuring all those things out. Right. And you know, me being an entrepreneur is entrepreneur, meaning I like people being entrepreneurial. Franchising made, made a lot of sense to me. The issue was I didn't know how to actually build a coffee business. And we didn't know how to run operational units successfully. And we already started franchising. So franchising is great when you've already worked those things out. We hadn't. And therefore, we were a bad franchisor. But if you think about our, our experiential learning platform, so these are on cafe, so right in the middle of legendary universities, Drexel, Temple, Millersville, Bowie State, Penn State, you have these Saxby's cafes that are all uniquely designed because they're designed by students. They're loud, they're fun, the, the products are on point, the hospitality is on point. They are exclusively run by undergraduate students. Those students are getting paid, they're getting full academic credit, and they have full autonomy of their profit and loss statement. So we're teaching business by allowing young people to run a business. And so it's the same thing. It's franchising for college students. Brilliant. So if I had not been such a bad franchisor, if we had been, if we had not been so unprepared as a franchisor, I don't believe that the idea for experiential learning would have ever come about. Like if if we would have, if we would have, and, and, and even if we just had that failure and just folded the business up, or we're just like, ah, you know what? Don't look in that closet with all the skeletons from franchising. If we didn't have the humility. <laughs> To actually be like, you know what? Let's forensically evaluate. What were we good at? What were we bad at? How, if we get a second lease on life, like how would we do this a little bit differently? And unfortunately, we had the humility and uh, the gumption to be able to forensically evaluate the mistakes and um, and pivot that into what has become our experiential learning platform. Awesome, awesome story. And I love that how you you're willing to share that that failure that you then pivot into an amazing concept that that's just empowering so many students. A lot of my own students have worked for your cafe in Fox. I, I adjunct at Fox at Temple. Um, so that actually kind of brings me to the next question. I love Temple. I went to Temple as an undergrad, got my law degree at Rutgers, came back and got my LLM at Temple. Uh, now I teach at Temple, huge fan of Temple. So you're a me Cornell too. guy. Why Temple? Why, why did you come back to Philly? So I technically started Saxby's in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had taken a consulting job out of school. I moved to Atlanta. I just wanted to be in a new city. You know, I'm, I'm from Chicago, but um, I just wanted to be in a new city. I, I interned in New York and Charlotte, LA when I was in school, liked all those places. I just wanted to be in a new place. And although the, the company that I worked for at a college was ironically based in Chicago, I wanted to go anywhere but Chicago. Not because I don't like Chicago. I love Chicago. But I just, I wanted, I'm an experienced person, you know, and I wanted to go somewhere different. So I go to Atlanta do that for a few years. And then I create Saxby's in Atlanta. My very first investor, again, when Saxby was fully franchised, was based in Philadelphia. And the caveat to the investment was to move the business to Philly. So I moved to Philly at a pretty amazing time. I moved here like right at the end of 2007. So Philly's won the World Series not long after. And if I, I think if you look at Philadelphia, you know the, the late 60s through the really at least 2000 was a tough time in Philadelphia. You know, like Poverty rate was high. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's still too high. Violence was too high. There was tremendous suburban flight. A lot of business vacating out of the city. It was yeah, probably 30 of the worst years ever in, in Philadelphia's history. I think that started to change. And then by the time 2007, 2008 started to roll around, a lot of things started to coalesce. I think maybe the biggest being we reversed the biggest brain drain in America. You know, like We have more students come to our city to go to college for four yeah. years in any other city, and, and, and not only just in America, in the world. But then 70 to 80% of them would leave upon graduation. 
places like New York, LA, Boston's a great example. They had the opposite. They would retain that talent. And that's what makes cities great is diversity, education. And so Philadelphia started to finally change that. And so I, I happen to be very lucky just moving here at that time, anchored here to Philly. I got a call a couple of years later from Cornell, who creates a, a great entrepreneurship program funded by a really successful entrepreneur called the Pillsbury Institute of Entrepreneurship. I became one of the two first ever entrepreneurs in residence, and I'm still doing that. So I started to spend a lot of time in the classroom. And as a result of that, Drexel and Temple and Penn started to call me. I spent a lot of time there. And I had a seat at the table. You know, I weaseled my way into the seat. I wasn't invited to that seat at the time, but I got to watch entrepreneurship go from when I was in school, which was non-existent in higher ed, to the place where I saw it in 2012, 2013, which is like now everybody is teaching entrepreneurship. But those that were most honest about it, I heard this a lot at Cornell, was we're only teaching one part of entrepreneurship well. We're teaching the learn how to write a business plan, raise capital, pivots, you know, partnerships, what you can teach in a classroom. But the hardest part of entrepreneurship or running a business is what happens with live fire. What happens when there's real ammunition out there? And so in the pedagogy of higher ed, that's experiential learning. And so the idea for this experiential learning platform came to me because I was driving from my center city parking garage in Philadelphia to Ithaca, New York, every, once a day, every single month now for nine, almost nine years. And so I had a lot of windshield time to be able to um, focus on, you know, what are we doing at Taxby's? Like, where is my heart and mind? Like, where's the connection for that for us to differentiate? And so the idea for experiential learning came on those drives. And wow. my first conversations were certainly at Cornell. And then also I was introduced to President Fry at Drexel. And you know, look, I love my alma mater and I spent a lot of time up there, but Cornell, um, you know, they, they jokingly call it, we're called the Cornell Big Red. That's our mascot. And uh, we jokingly openly speak about it at Cornell that it's the Cornell Big Red Tape. You know, it is, there's so much red tape and getting the opportunity to have great real estate and then carving students out where they're not taking classes and getting full credit for a professional venture with a third party private company is something that everyone conversationally loves, but it was moving so slowly. Right. And as an entrepreneur, I don't have the luxury of moving slowly. So I meet John. John is like an entrepreneur with, with a president's title at a major university. And I had to move quick enough to keep up with John. And, wow. you know, and that was, uh, that was where that was, was born. And I was originally having conversations at Temple as well. And, and Temple was just going through some leadership changes when we were there. But Temple had always been big supporters of it. And then friendly competition is a good thing. Once we opened at Drexel, it was funny how things just moved a little bit quicker <laughs> at, at Temple. But Temple has been, uh, they've been phenomenal supporters. President Englert has been, uh, has been a great supporter. Um, you know, the deans of the business school. And, and now we're actually like, what's so great about Temple is that we originally started in the hospitality program, STHM. And then we got to move in and created a partnership with the Fox School of Business. And now we have student CEOs coming out of other schools as well. So we, one of our outgoing student CEOs right now, she actually comes out of the Klein, Klein School of Communications. And the, and the argument for that is that we're not teaching people to be coffee entrepreneurs. You know, what we're teaching people to be is civic-minded leaders. We're teaching them how to develop talent, how to build culture and camaraderie on a team, how to be able to be a community-centric business. Like, How do you make sure that your community cares about your business by being civic-minded? And then how do you account for that financially? They come into our office every single month and they present their profit and loss statement. So um, you know, Haley Redder is her name, who is just the, the former student CEO out of, out of Klein. Regardless of what she's going to do, and I would bet 50-50, 50% of me says that she's going to stay in communications. 50% of me says that she's going to go into some field completely different. 
But 100% of me is certain whatever she does, nonprofit, for-profit, agnostic of industry or size of business, every part of what she just experienced running her own million-dollar business will be hugely beneficial for what for whatever she does. And so that's the argument for, for experiential learning. So I love Temple 2. Temple, we have two, two cafes there. We have hundreds of Temple team members, whether they're still college students or graduates, um, getting paychecks from Saxby's at, at any given time. So we are, uh, we're big owls fan, you know, big, big owl fans as well here. And, and Ray, who you work with on my team who runs exp- uh, external right. affairs is not just a temple guy, but he's also an adjunct professor and he's a former student body president. So we, uh, we can't love temple more than we do. Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking of Ray, in preparation for this episode, you know, you did put me in touch with Ray to coordinate this. He's your head of partnerships and external relations. And I happen to ask him what his favorite thing was about working for you and for Saxby's. And also I asked him what question he thought I should ask you. He, first of all, Ray replied that, quote, personally, I love how Nick puts young people in the driver's seat, empowering young talent to step up and lead company priorities and initiatives, end quote. You hit that nail right on the head. You're executing and your internal team is completely bought in. So kudos to that. Congratulations. And, and we really appreciate Ray submitting that. Now, the question that he submitted was, out of all of the mission statements you could have selected, why did you decide on make life better? What inspired that? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So part half of that answer is going to come from from one of the things I said earlier today, which is that I know that I'm hardwired to be happiest when I'm doing things for other people. You know, like there's there's nothing that makes me happier than um, than doing something for somebody else and seeing their happiness or their gratitude for that. Like that's a, that's a really intoxicating thing and it's a motivating thing. You know, it's not it's not the kind of thing that like goes away. You know, just like you know, give a pizza to to a man sleeping on the street, and then you're like, all right, I checked the box, I'm good till next year. It's kind of thing where like you see him look at you, being like, that's a very kind and thoughtful thing to do. Thank you so much. That's the kind of thing that stays with you the rest of the day. You wake up the next day and you can't wait to figure out how to do more of that. You know, and so it's it's a very like intoxicating and addicting thing, which which I think um, is is great. So that that was my natural proclivity towards it, and then sort of the learned, um, you know, of this is that when I had hired a good friend, who's a Philadelphian as well, named Ed Doherty, Ed had created a consulting practice to help companies sort of develop or, in some instances, change their company culture. And Saxby's like every company has culture, whether you realize it or not, whether it's defined or not. Every company has culture. If it's not defined and you're not living it every day, it's probably bad culture. We had culture, but it was like, if you were around me and you heard me talk about my life experiences and my passions and my failures, you could feel some of that culture. But culture has to be actually defined. It has to be written into word. It has to be hired upon, trained upon. Um, you know, It has to be sort of grown outside of just one person. Like A business isn't going to be too great if Nick's the only person who can live the culture. But if Ray can live the culture just as well, if not better than Nick... And then Ray can impact Tony, who can impact Luke, who blah, 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 blah. Then you've got something really, really special. And so when I had hired my friend Ed, he had given me just sort of a couple words of advice, which are, one, the best cultures are, are those that are defined. And the definitions, like the mission statement and the core values are things that are truly unique. You know, So I'm not, I'm not a big believer of companies whose core values are integrity and passion. And you know, like I, I, 
it's just, that's not unique. Like th- those are table stakes to build a company. Like how is your company going to be not just good, but it's going to be great. You have to have unique and differentiated and an inherently inspiring mission statement and core values. And so you know, he, he had said it needs to be something that's not just mundane and off the shelf. And secondly, if you don't walk the walk, Nick, nobody else will walk the walk. And so I was like, you know what? Then somewhat selfishly, I'm going to build mission statement and core values that I truly believe in. Not things that I feel good on like a Friday night. Like, oh, it's great. Now I'm going to be like happy, Nick, with my core values. When I roll out of bed on a cold Monday morning, what are the things that I believe in? What are the things that I'm going to do every single day? And I like making people's lives better. And so at this company, we can't hire people who are like, I'm going to make a difference in people's lives once I'm rich. Like once I'm rich, then I'm going to donate some money and then I'm going to do good for people. You're not a good taxi person. You might, you might be a great person. You might be successful in other places. You're just not a taxi person. And you're like, you know, I'm going to do like at the end of the week, if I tally up like how many more people I did good for than I did bad for, and it's positive on the good side, that's a good week for me. That's not a good week for us. Every interaction you should be making, making people's lives better. And it's a high standard. It's unique, it's authentic, and it's very inspirational. And so that's how Make Life Better was centered on. And I remember when we came to that, Ed was like, Nick, that's a big standard. You know, like that's, that's a big standard to be making people's lives better every single day. And I was like, well, that's, you know, it's, it's a big standard to think that I can create a coffee business you know, with Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks and Wawa. So if we're already in the, in the game of betting, let's bet big on our mission core values too. And that, that's how all that came together. That's awesome. Really, really awesome. Now, how do you keep yourself accountable to that and Saxby's accountable to that? So in other words, what are, to your point, I, I couldn't agree with you more that when you're doing things, uh, quick sidebar, by the way, Hats off to you, kudos to you for coming up with triple bottom line way before it was a thing, right? Now everybody's talking about triple bottom line. And it's uh, business. I think yeah. people finally realize that it, it's it, that time is now. Yeah, but you you came up with it so much, so much earlier than everybody else. And uh, you remind me of other people like uh the founders of United by Blue and other organizations like that that were sort of that B corporation model, which is still around, but not really that effective. So that kind of leads me to this accountability issue, right? Because Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. You see it in law firms, you see it in traditional sort of bureaucratic organizations. Yeah, our triple bottom line initiative is to use less paper by 2025. That is total bullshit. I'm just going to say it's total bullshit, right? It's great that you're going to use less paper, but is that really doing that much more for the community and your stakeholders and the people that support your organization, et cetera? So, and not to mention that it's very, you know, uh, great for the organization that's using less paper. So they're wasting less money as well. Right. Um, so how do you keep, you know, your eye on the target of staying accountable to that mission? Yeah. I think one of the things that I've had to learn over time is that, if you try to be everything to everybody, you're actually nothing to everybody, you know? And so one of the things I've had to learn is like, I, I was very proud of the fact for many years, I was like a standing yes. Like if you just asked me to, for a donation to support this or that, I pretty much would just say yes to everything. And look, I don't, I don't regret that, you know, like I, I really don't regret that um, because it, it showed me how, how make life better could actually work. You know, like being able to say yes to people, to be on a podcast, to donate a gift basket to this, to, you know, all these different kinds of things. And I saw how, how it motivated me, you know, but then over time I started to realize, I'm like, if I say yes to everything, 
we're, we're not making the kind of impact that we need. And so as Saxby's has evolved, like behind closed walls, we, we refer to ourselves as an education and opportunity company. Like people on the outside would be like, oh, yes, actually, it's a coffee company or the hospitality company or, you know, they'll, they'll put other monikers on it, all of which is true. But at our heart and soul, we're actually an education and opportunity company. So we're very focused. I believe that in this country that you do not get opportunities unless you have an education. You know, so if, if we look at Philadelphia... Philadelphia, yes, is the poorest of all big cities. It's also the least educated of all the big cities. Ironically, because as you pointed out earlier, we have an abundance of universities Ironically around. and so sadly, you know, yeah. and so unacceptably as yeah. well. Yeah, you yeah. know, like we have an abundance, abundance. We're the largest college town in the world. But in this country, if you do not get education, you do not get opportunities. And God forbid you're a person of color. God forbid you're not a white male like me you have even less opportunities and even less things to be able to overcome. And so, you know, we believe in, in the idea of education opportunity. And so over the last several years, as that started to come into focus for us, we started to realize that we needed to say yes in that space and have to say no. And sometimes no was like, let me make introductions to you for people who support leukemia and lymphoma or support animal welfare, other things, because those are very important causes. But our business is set up to make a difference in education and opportunity. So if we can use our money and our efforts and our people in those areas, those are big areas. And you know, we've got a good and growing platform to be able to make an impact. And so that's, that's where things started to really, really click for us. So it's no surprise that when people meet people at Saxby's, it's no surprise that many of our people are former teachers or have education degrees, or have nursing degrees, or, you know, did nonprofit work in sort of like Big Brothers, Big Sisters, or Boys and Girls Clubs, because they, they believe in education opportunity. And the only way, you, it used to be that the only way you could provide people education opportunity was go be a teacher, or go be a coach, or go in the nonprofit space. Well, this, we're now at the sort of turning point of capitalism, where the line between for-profit and nonprofit is being blurred. Nonprofits need to act more like for-profits and yes. for-profits need to act more like nonprofits. Yes. That line is being yeah. bur- blurred. And so you know, that's, that's where we are right now is we're sort of like that intersection of where Starbucks meets Temple University meets Big Brothers, Big Sisters. We're sort of that company sort of in the nexus of, of those areas. We have like the heart of a nonprofit, but we have the ingenuity and the innovation of a for-profit. And, um, and I think that that's, I don't, I don't think we're unique to that right now. And I don't think we're unique to that moving forward. I think that's how all businesses are going to have to compete because that's where talent wants to go. And that's where dollars want to go right now. That's, that's where people want to spend their money. You know, our, our head of marketing has a great saying. It's like people will buy from brands that they like, but they buy into brands that they believe in. You know, you want zealots to your brand. You want people who not just go and buy your coffee, but then tell everyone around their, their sphere of influence, you need to go to Saxby's as well. They'll buy into you because of what you stand for. And that's why I think our, our best years are ahead of us because we're starting to really put this together. We're starting to understand who we are, the problems that we're helping solve, and we're making good mission core values driven decisions to ensure that we're moving in the right direction. Awesome. Really awesome stuff. And I think that's really actionable. Thanks for for clarifying that. And I couldn't agree with you more. I'm going to be honest. We have not met before this podcast. We mm-hmm. met over email briefly, obviously, before we set up the podcast. Um, but I had heard of you as an undergrad at Temple. 
because Saxby's was already around. I graduated in 2010. Um, and you have inspired myself and my colleagues to create a very similar style business. We were talking about it before we started recording this episode. And uh, so I may steal some of your stuff. Sorry. Please. <laughs> to drive, drive the internal team. But I, I couldn't agree with you more about triple bottom line organizations being the wave of the future. I teach intellectual property and entertainment law at Fox. And while it's not related, I do constantly preach to the students, look into what triple bottom line organizations are, familiarize yourself with it, Get with the program because this is where things are going. That is the definite direction that the majority of businesses need to be going in. And it provides a lot of opportunity, to your point, for cause marketing initiatives with nonprofits, for CSR programs with nonprofits, uh, et cetera. And it just it makes everything better. And you're right. It makes coming to work that much more joyful, not only for yourself, but for the entirety of your team. And the really cool thing is not only do you develop zealots as customers, but you develop zealots as stakeholders, right? Your team that works for you, both in the C-suite or on, you know, at the counter at your coffee shops, all of them become zealots for your organization. I know this because I've had students at Fox, as I said, that worked at your coffee shop in Alter. So, yeah. um, okay, now shifting to the development of the system, and you talked about how you kind of started delving into franchising, didn't work out, and then you pivoted that idea and concept into the ELP program. What were the pitfalls and issues that you ran into in developing a system that focused on college students essentially running the majority of your business? You know, what were those pitfalls and how did you overcome them specifically? But also touch on the fact, if you don't mind, that, you know, there's this stigma about millennials and Gen Zers being lazy or not being good workers, or you can't motivate them. And obviously you're running a business that's 90% or so dependent. I'm just throwing an arbitrary number on 90% of your team probably is in that age group, right? More or less. So how did you develop a system that pushes those people to, to succeed? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of great questions sort of in there. So I would say that if we did this experiential learning platform, like reverse history of Saxby's and, and when we started franchising, if instead we did experiential learning, we would have made so many more mistakes than we actually made. But I think the benefit of having had all that franchising experience, the business plan, you know, the, the, as I like to call it, sort of like the roadmap for how you're going to run your business was so much more accurate. And that's not to say that we didn't make mistakes. We certainly did. There were a lot of lessons learned. I would say that there are like sort of two big key things that like really popped out as it relates to experiential learning. Um, and before I go into those two, I will say that there were so few people who believed that the very first experiential learning Saxby's, we, we call it OG Drexel, 34th and Lancaster, because <laughs> um, we have a second one on campus now as well. But it's also sort of the OG of the entire platform at this point. Right. There were very few people who believed that OG Drexel Saxby's was going to be successful um, for a lot of reasons. One is like everyone's heard of student run things before, like their bookstore and their high school was student run. And like they never had pencils or pens. And it felt like a charity because it was just like kids trying to do things. So there was already a stigma on that. There was also like the stigma of like Nick at the time, it was millennials, 2015. You know, like they're lazy. They don't want their. They want to be spoon fed everything. They don't want to show up. They don't want to work hard. They don't want to actually serve guests. They don't want to, they don't want to this, that, that, that. Everybody was so negative about whether, whether people could do that. But 
we weren't a startup anymore. It's we, we had our mission core values. We had a lot of like trials and tribulations. And we started to see when we made good decisions on who we opened the gates of our castle to. And we, we opened the gates in the castle, not because you're smart or you're handsome or you're educated or you're this or that. We opened the gates because you see our bat signal up in the sky and you're like, that bad signal, which happens to be our mission core values, makes my heart race. I want, I want to be inside that castle. So we let you in our castle because you believe in making life better. You believe that you serve yourself by serving others. You believe that we embrace being outgoing, detail-oriented, disciplined. The things that we believe differentiate us and make our job fun and impactful, when people opt into those things, we feel like we can build a successful team as a result of that. And so despite the fact that everyone thought we were going to fail, almost I could literally count on one hand how many people, and I wouldn't even say many people thought we would succeed. Everyone pretty much thought we were going to fail. <laughs> and so there was a lot of motivation for, for that. Um, but when we opened up April 13th, 2015, myself and, and uh, John Fry and, and Donna DeCarolis, the founding dean of the Close School of Entrepreneurship at Drexel, we did celebratory espresso shots and the place just filled up with students, with faculty, with community members. And John and I went outside and he pointed behind him and he goes, Nick, this is the future of education. Everyone needs to learn the skills that you guys are teaching. Um, you know, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, cultural agility. We're a great university director. We can't teach any of those things in the classroom. But those are the things that all of our students are demanding to learn, what their parents expect them to learn, and what the employers are demanding young people coming into the workforce have. So we need these things in education. And you know, I would say the lessons that we learned are, are one, very specific to Saxby's, and that you know, so much of this is predicated on the, what we call the student CEO. So the person who's responsible for the business is a student CEO. So for six months, that student takes zero classes, gets a full semester of credit, and manages a team of, on average, about 50 of his or her peers. And every single month, they come into our office, they present their profit and loss statement, they have huge budgets. These are usually million-dollar business units. And so they're donating a lot of money, they're hosting a lot of events, they're dealing with any business. You take any business in any industry that does a million dollars in revenue, which someone recently told me less than 5% of all companies in the U.S., do more than a million dollars in business. So these young people are running a top 5% business. So any business, an accounting firm, a nonprofit that employs 50 people does that level of revenue. That's what our student CEOs are responsible for. I think the big lesson that we learned is that as fun as it is to say, like when we post a new student CEO job, 240 people applied for that job. That's amazing. That makes us feel good. Like how this is so demanding. It's really hard to change leadership like to change the bus driver when the bus is going 70 miles an hour yeah, down the highway. Right, right. You know, and so the biggest lesson that we learned was the importance of internal promotion, you know, and internal development. So we turned that into a great teaching moment. You know, as, as day one for every student CEO, I'm one of their sort of keynote speakers. And I always give them the, the somewhat dramatic example. But I remember when I was a young person, when I was working at McDonald's or when I was, you know, bartending when I was in college, it felt good to be the only person who was good at a certain thing. Be like, man, look at how good I am. I am so irreplaceable because I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the only person who can open the place or close it or blah, 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 blah. Like if you find yourself in that position as a student CEO, I want you to hear me in your ear saying, you're a bad leader. Whereas on the other side, if you can go away for fall break and go visit your family and your operating business, you get no phone calls and everything was done to training and to high standards, you're a great leader. 
you've empowered people and you've trained people. So we turn that into a great leading, uh, you know, a great lesson that our student CEOs, 99.9% of the time, the student CEO who they, they pass the baton to their successor now. So instead of us having to like put the bat signal outside of the business and say, who wants to come in and be the next student CEO, the promotion comes internally. And the person's usually been identified and already trained by the existing student CEO. And that's, I think, just a great leadership lesson. The other side of it, though, is that you know, on most college campuses, um, real estate and dining is handled by a third-party company, Aramark's Dexo Compass Group. And out of ignorance, I decided to just sort of avoid those companies early on. And John Fry was a very good lead blocker for me. He carved me out of their contract, which created some animosity with his, with his old provider. Um, so I didn't realize how powerful and important those companies were. And you know, I think the big lesson learned for us is by the time we had gotten to about four or five of these partnerships on different campuses, like Drexel and Millersville are polar opposite schools, urban, yeah, rural, private, public, co-op school, non-co-op school, school of business, no school of business, but students who are smart and hardworking and want to get the tool belt to be successful in life exist on both of those campuses. Once we started to have success across a wide range of higher ed, I, I realized that I'm not doing ourselves or the future talent of this business much of a service by growing this slowly. Like This is the kind of game-changing platform that needs to be taken to a much larger scale. And so over the, over the COVID break, if you will, we have created partnerships with two of the three largest dining service companies. And so what we are planning for and expect to see pretty explosive growth of our experiential learning platform starting this coming fall and hopefully indefinitely moving forward. Because the lesson learned I had there is that it was taking us a long time to grow this platform because of how embedded into campuses these, uh, these dining service providers are. So instead of Instead of just pridefully working against them and around them, I said, if we can sit down and say, here's what we believe in, here's what you believe in, where's commonality and how can we divide and conquer to partner together successfully? We were fortunate and able to do that. And I think that we're going to impact a lot of people's lives together as a result of that. Awesome. Awesome. Really, really cool stuff. So one quick question is, how do you make sure that the people that you're putting in those student CEO positions are aligned with that make life better every single day and that they're aligned with what all of your core values are. What's it, what's yeah. your, what's your true litmus test for that? So I, there's two things I'll point to on that, uh, Tony. The, the first is, again, I, I'm talking a lot about our mission core values. I know you can sort of see the stuff that's behind me, but um, there's one mission statement, which is make life better. And there's six core values. Yeah. You know, they're, they're explicit, they're simple, and most importantly, they're practiced unapologetically every day in this company. Um, so one of the things I, I point to is one of the core values you actually can't see behind my head is um, care personally, communicate openly. I think that's a truly unique thing to Saxby's. I think most companies and most things I read about is companies get bigger, people complain about communication. They're left in the dark. They don't know what's going on. They rarely have communication with their boss. They don't know, you know, they don't know where they stand on things. It's like, why don't we flip that on its head? Why, why don't we do a complete opposite position? So we over-communicate here. Like we are incredibly transparent. There is nothing off the table. I, I do all these breakfast meetings with student CEOs, CEOs, team members, baristas. I, I try to be incredibly prevalent in the cafes. And people know my reputation in the company is like, 
you can ask Nick or talk to him about anything. Like there is nothing like if there is a trade secret or something that I have to protect for the greater good of the business, I'll draw that line. But I can think of like one or two instances when that has happened. So, and we do that all the way down to, to performance approvals because the second part of what we believe is that, you know, good, good companies have mission core values. Great companies put them into play every single day. And we were transitioning from good to great when I realized that we're so good at pointing out all the great things people do among, amongst our culture. Like, hey, Tony, when you pulled that shift um, for your team member whose mom got sick and blah, 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 and you covered her shifts for two straight weeks, that was unbelievable. You made her life better. Congratulations. We have so many different ways that we promote that across the company. What we weren't doing was we weren't talking about, we were ignoring what was happening when people weren't following our culture. You know, so one, one of the phrases that I like is that um, culture is the, is the behavior that you reward and correct. We were really good at rewarding the positive culture, not very good at the, the other side, because that's part of the challenge for us with a young generation is one of the true facts is that we are living in a softer and softer world. You know, like it's, it's just, we're not giving feedback as parents. We're not, we're, we're trying to shelter kids from any sort of setback whatsoever. And so in many instances, when a young person shows up as an 18 year old and they pop onto Temple's campus, shockingly, we're the first employer for many of these kids, which I hate to sound like that old guy, but I'm like, I don't know anyone when I was 18 who hadn't had a job already at 18, right. yeah. but it's Same. very different today, you Same. know? And so, and then we take it to a whole nother level. Where it's like, look, this is not going to be the place we're going to be like, Tony, you, anything you do is amazing. You walk on water. We're just not like that here because I don't believe that's how the real world is once you actually graduate and you go in and you start working for companies. So it's better off that we teach them now, not just as receivers of it, but they're also delivering that feedback. Our student CEOs are oftentimes in the same sorority with people that they have to write up. They're in the same math class with someone that they're competing with for a promotion in the business. Right. Your competition is real, but treating people respectfully, care personally. And we believe that you do that by, by, by communicating openly. And so we hire based on our core values and we exit people out of our company based on our core values. Uh, we, we have the most civil exits in, in, uh, in our business, I would say, in the last several years because... You know, when Tony shows up late for the third time in an opening shift, we sit down and say, hey, Tony, you know, yesterday you were supposed to open at 6 a.m. with Luke and with Nick. You didn't show up. You know how hard it is to open. And so we were not prepared for the first guest who showed up. Like, how did that make their life better? And like you're doing right now, you just shake your head. You're like, I didn't make their life better. I let them down. And I know I'm not doing what the company expects. So when people know what they expect, what's expected of them, they voluntarily bought into it business becomes pretty easy. Then yeah, it's just about right. doing that consistently. And I, and I try to set the tone as the CEO of the company, because if I can walk the walk, I'm not any more talented than anybody else in my business. If I can do it, everybody else in our company can do it as well. And so that's our litmus test, you know, is, is really those awesome. two things. Do we care personally, communicate openly, and culture is what you reward and correct. Incredible. I love that. So just to wrap up, I see Saxby's 3.0 behind you amongst all those core values. So what does 3.0 mean? So it means a lot. Um, first and foremost, that, that 3.0 was drawn, cut out, and taped on the wall back there by my son, Luke. Um, because <laughs> since March uh, 15th, 
this has been his classroom. This has been his playground. This has been his everything. I've been living you know, nearly in this office and he's been with me and my wife is an entrepreneur and she's been posted up in here. And so, you know, Saxby's 3.0 is, is the, um, is the business that we recreated in COVID, you know, like Saxby's 3.0's slogan has been survive to thrive. You know, by April 1st, I realized that in our business in particular, we were in for a long haul. Like this was going to be very devastating because not just being in the coffee business, but specifically where our cafes were or are college campuses in dense urban environments. Like those two areas have just been crushed from a business perspective. And there's nothing I can do about that. I can't like convince John Fryer to bring all the students back to campus. I can't convince the people in Liberty Place High Rise to bring their workers back. I can't. I can focus on what I can control. What I can control is the cash flow of my business, the talent in my business. And so we went into deep survival mode. But I didn't want to cut so deep and make so many changes that we wouldn't be ready to thrive because we have our experiential learning platform. Our culture and experiential learning platform are the holy grail of business. Everyone wants to create a business that's disruptive, that's differentiating, and that's highly scalable. We have that. So it'd be foolish of me, it'd be foolish of me to cut so deeply that we couldn't thrive on the other side. So 3.0 is the company that is surviving COVID and is going to thrive very, very quickly. I think we're already starting to move into thrival mode, even if our uh, our cafes aren't yet ready to show us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my son's uh, iPad just died in class, so I, I will deal with that. <laughs> Luke, Luke is calling calling time well, welcome, in two welcome minutes. Welcome to podcast in the COVID era, right? I love it. I love it. Yeah. I can't. I I actually do really appreciate it. That that was amazing. I I really think um, that's an incredible way to end this episode. And love what you guys are doing. We hope to emulate that. I haven't announced yet what what we're doing, but hopefully you and I can can have a little brainstorming. I can pick your brain because we're trying to do something similar. Um, Nick, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. I hope the listeners got a lot of great and really practical advice from an amazing innovator in our industry and in our community. Thanks so much, Tony. It was my, uh, my pleasure. Be well, and I uh, look forward to hearing more about your, uh, your new venture.